Today's interview is brought to you by Algorand. You'll be hearing more about them as well as Decipher 2022, their event in Dubai, later on in the show. But for now, let's get on with today's interview. I am joined by Scott Freeman, co-founder and partner at JST Capital, a crypto trading firm. Scott, great to have you here. How are you doing? Great, Jack. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot going on in crypto, and I want to ask you about all of it. But before we get into that, can we just know who are you? What's your background? I know that this really intrigued me when I first learned this about you. You used to work at the Federal Reserve, and now you, you uh, work at a, you know, a co- company trading crypto. So how did that transition happen? What's your sure. background? So JST Capital is a financial services company focused 100% on crypto and digital assets. We've been in business for five years. I started out my career as a lawyer and worked, among other places, at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Made my way to in-house counsel at Citibank, and then ultimately was helping to run the foreign exchange businesses. At, at B of A and City, I focused on systematic trading, which is the quantitative side of trading. Um, from there, I started a hedge fund with some partners and focused on systematic trading again. And in 2014, we got into crypto when we were hired by one of the original crypto companies to help them turn up markets and make a market for them. And then we started JST in 2018. And I started it with my partner, Todd, uh, who's based in Singapore. So we're very much a systematic, quantitative, focused trading company that focuses 100% of our time on crypto and digital assets. Thanks. And Scott, when you worked in foreign exchange systematic trading at uh, uh, those commercial banks, those, those investment banks, what is a typical investment strategy of a, of a systematic trader? You know, there's, there's Warren Buffett who's saying, I like Apple, I like this stock because the, you know, future cash flows, I'm going to buy it and then hopefully never sell it. Uh, systematic trading is, is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. How would you define it? And what are some sort of key principles of, of that uh, uh, practice? Well, at a basic level, when you work for a big bank like that, your primary focus is being a market maker, right? So you're making a two-sided market. You want to just be very efficient and fast in what you do. And you just want to have people trading against your bid offer all day. So you want to be smart. You want to understand where the mid price is. You want to understand how to manage risk. It's very short-term trading. You're looking at milliseconds or microseconds even and trying to understand where the market is. And you generally have some predictors in place that are all quantitative in nature as well that help you predict where the market will go. But even those predictions tend to be within a very short time span. You're not talking hours, days, or even weeks. You're talking literally seconds or microseconds. So from that background, from just looking at real pure quantitative finance, you can then expand into other types of quantitative trading, but they all they all focus on fighting patterns in the past and hoping those patterns continue or replicate going forward. Right? It's being smart enough to understand uh, when those when you think those patterns will continue and when you think those patterns won't continue. You're looking for patterns, whether they're relationships between assets, whether they're relationships within assets. You're essentially saying, hey, if this happened yesterday or this happened every day for the past year. I think will happen today as well. Um, so that, those those types of strategies could be trend following. It could be mean reverting. Uh, there could be pure arbitrage where you're buying assets and selling assets at the same time on different locations. There, there are lots of different flavors to it. And so r- remind us, when did you get into crypto and, and what drew you to this, the digital asset space? Well, we were fortunate enough to be introduced to it by a former friend of mine who from the Federal Reserve who was in the crypto ecosystem. And she approached and asked us to help out with a project she was working on. Um, and she said, listen, we're, we're trying to start up an exchange. We're start, trying to get liquidity into our digital asset. Can you help with it? 
And it was very much in our sweet, sweet spot. We just viewed it as another type of asset, another uh, currency that we were comfortable making markets around. So it took us a while to get comfortable with some of the unique aspects of crypto at that time, which are still unique, but, you know, managing your wallets, dealing with the, we were in decentralized finance even back then, but dealing with exchanges that were just getting off the ground, understanding the risks of those exchanges. So a lot of the issues that still exist today, we started dealing with in 2014 and 2015. Wow, 2014, 2015. What were those issues? And also, was it primarily Bitcoin that you, you were trading or were there other players who might, you know, are, are no longer around. Yeah, there were other assets we were trading. It wasn't just Bitcoin, but the issues could have involved how do you maintain your wallet, right? We, you know, you had nanos back then. You didn't have MetaMask, right? There, so it was just the complexities around keeping your secret keys secret. How do you do it, right? It was very early in the process. So there was instructions and papers out there, but you wanted to test it yourself. You wanted to do backups. You wanted to resurrect wallets. Like all the things that we take for granted today, we would have gone through and test it out to make sure they worked. That was the first step. And then you start interacting with exchanges that really don't have APIs or they have native APIs or they, and, and their messaging was, was, uh, less than perfect, put it that way. So they would often go down. They would send you weird messages back. They wouldn't get messages back. So it was very, very, um, hit or miss. And it was very inconsistent when you traded on exchanges way back when. And when you didn't trade on an exchange way back when, what did you do? What was there, you know, DeFi now is somewhat well-defined or at least better defined than it was then. Was it literally just sending people an address, you know, sending people, Oh, here's my private key. Here's your private key. Or there was some of that as the market grew, there was a lot of trading on Skype. There was trading on WhatsApp. There was trading on all the different messaging apps where you then settled, you settled on the chain, but all the transactions happened off chain, right? Cause the, the DeFi didn't exist and um, exchanges really weren't up to snuff yet. So we spent a lot of time onboarding, onboarding people. Sorry, we were onboarding with exchanges and then we had a whole process. We had clients onboarding with us as well. That was a big process back then, right? Because, you know, we want to be compliant. We're very careful about regulation. I used to work at the Federal Reserve, so I'm very aware of uh, money laundering issues and know your client issues and things like that. So we spent a lot of time dotting I's, crossing T's, getting our accountants, getting our lawyers comfortable with what we were doing and vice versa. So this was really, really early on. And, and, and the, the, the rule book hadn't been written yet, put it that way. Mm. So, so when you joined crypto, was it, I know 2013, 2014 was kind of when a bear market was starting. I forget the exact months. When did sort of the, the bull market start? And uh, did you join at the, you know, the end of a bear market, start of a bull market? or And how did sort of the market psychology change, change over then? Because the you know, first time I really... Uh, not, not the first time I heard of crypto, but first time I sort of looked into crypto was um, 2017, 2018. So you've, you've definitely got uh, many years on, on me and probably most of my audience as well. So Right. I would say 2017, 2018 was really the first bull market when things really started to pick up. And a lot of, a lot of folks started getting into it, understanding it. It was getting more popular. Uh, and that was the first bull market. But yeah, I've been in it a long time. I've been through five or six now bull and bear markets, right? This, you know, we've been through a bunch of crypto winters. This one's particularly chilly. Um, but we've, we've seen a lot, right? And, um, one of the interesting things that, that we've noticed and continue to notice that a lot of the issues that have happened in crypto really parallel what's happened in traditional markets. So there's really nothing unique that's happening in crypto. There's always, if every issue we've had in crypto, there's been a corollary in traditional finance that is very, very similar. Mm. And are there certain patterns in bear markets and, and bull markets 
that you notice and, and think are particularly relevant? Uh, we're not a position shop. We're not trying to take long or short positions in one coin or another coin. We're looking for systematic anomalies in the market. So folks like us tend to focus on, you know, you focus on volatility in the market. You fo focus on short-term volatility versus long-term volatility. You focus on liquidity in the market. You see liquidity, like today, it's drying up, right? We see a lot less liquidity. We see markets gapping a lot more. So you, in, in a traditional bear market or a crypto winner, which we've seen, people pull back liquidity. They pull back assets. They deleverage. Markets gap a lot more. Um, volatility spikes on the short term, but not as much on the, on the far, on the far side. So those are the kind of the things that we see in a typical bear market, which we've seen today, right? And then when you come out of a bear market, maybe you see volumes start picking up a little bit. Maybe you see assets on exchange start picking up a little bit. Maybe in this world, maybe you see DeFi starting to pick up a little bit. Maybe you see total value locks starting to pick up a little bit. So those are the kind of things that we'll keep an eye on just to get a sense of the overall health of the market, but may not necessarily be an indicator whether you should buy or sell one coin. Mm. And how did, how did you assess the health of the market starting from, let's say, the huge liquidity uh, uh, crash in March of 2020 that happened on all assets, but particularly Bitcoin early March. Uh, that was really sort of the, the start of the new bull market, even though prices had been going up before then. Uh, yeah, tell us your process, sort of like walk us through April 2020 to maybe wow. April 2022. Well, it's really hard to go back that far, right? That was, yeah. it was, uh, you know, all markets were in a free fall in March and April of 20. And, and we, like everyone else, was very concerned about everything, right? From the health of our employees and families and the safety, what was happening in the world, right? So uh, some level of markets were secondary as everyone was scrambling to get their lives in order and understand what, what was happening in the world. Uh, but that was an anomaly. Markets sold off 50%. Crypto, Bitcoin sold off 50, 60% in one day, right? So um, I think, thankfully, we haven't been through that again. Um, but, you know, e put it, each problem, each anomaly in the market is unique, right? And when you're living in the current one, it's always the worst one, right? Because you just don't know how it's going to end, right? So this is by far the worst one. In a month or two, will it still be the worst one? I don't know. Right. The, the, the final chapter has not been written here. Um, but every problem we've been through has been a unique problem. Um, two, say unique within crypto, but again, it's, there have been similar types of, of, of issues in normal markets as well. But it's really hard to, um, these things are very, very hard to predict. Um, you know, you do see signs in the market that get us worried and, and we tend to de-risk when we see those things. And what's an example of those signs? And uh, when did you, you start seeing them? I mean, there are a lot of people who analyze sentiment. So, for example, oh, when Bitcoin was on the cover of The Economist, you know, that's a sign <laughs> that the bull market was getting a little bit long in the tooth. When everyone, all the celebrities were going on the TV shows talking about their bored apes, that's a sign that, you know, things might be, be getting a, a little bit excessive. Uh, I imagine you're looking at much more quantitative things, um, you know, without, you know, revealing too much alpha for us. Uh, what, yeah, what's, what are those things? Yeah, we, we tend to focus more on liquidity and leverage in the market and volatility, right? So we, we tend not to focus on a, a particular coin moving more or less than another coin or even the absolute re movement of a coin. Um, we tend to focus on more macro, macro, liquidity type issues, but they just help us inform how we're going to trade more than whether we're going to trade. So it's, you know, if I need to sell a few million dollars of Bitcoin, I need to understand where I can do it, how I can do it, 
how long it would take me, what are the liquidity, where, what exchanges can I do in DeFi, CFI. So it more informs how we're going to trade often as opposed to when and if we're going to trade. Does that make sense? Thanks for explaining that. I'm, I'm yeah. actually really glad you said that. Okay, so we've got liquidity, leverage, and volatility. Volatility mathematically is very complex, and I definitely don't, don't understand it, but I think all the information is there. But I think leverage and liquidity is really hard to, to measure, even in traditional finance, let alone a, a nation asset class like crypto. Let's start with liquidity. The sort of textbook definition is the ease with which uh, market participants can enter or exit a position. So, you know, if I want to buy 100,000 shares of Apple, if in a liquid market, it's easy. Uh, in an illiquid market, it might be a little bit more difficult. Um, and Apple is a, is a very uh, liquid stock. But how do you measure that on a, on a quantitative basis? Are you, are you sort of looking at bid to ask offer spreads? Are you looking at just the volume of, of stuff that it has traded? Uh, everything. And then um, also, was there a point, what, what, was, what was sort of peak liquidity uh, in, in crypto? Did it occur last year or this year? Uh, yeah. So we will look at a variety of factors. It could be just order book depth. What's the top of the book look like? What does the depth of the book look like? How wide is the top of the book? We look at volume traded. We look at volume traded across different exchanges. Has that changed? You know, looking at, obviously it's changed a lot since FTX, right? But we've also seen now that FTX has gone under, there's been a market shift in where things are traded, right? We look at now you look at DeFi more. Maybe you, you get a better understanding um, about what the markets are like. But w behind that, you also need to understand some of the unique anomalies of those places. If you're trading perps or, or, or futures on those exchanges, you need to understand funding rates. You need to understand some of the anomalies of how the funding rates work on all those things. You need to understand what how you get paid. Are you get paid in a native coin to get paid in dollars? So there's a lot of variables here that you need to think about um, when you try to figure out where to best trade and how to best trade. So all those things are, are things that we tend to look at on a day-by-day, -day, even hour-by-hour -hour basis as we're trading. And one of the challenges of crypto as well, there's no centralized order book, right? So, you know, you may see anomalies on an exchange, but you may just not have enough assets there to take advantage of the anomaly. Right. And then you have to figure out, does it make sense for me to move assets there? Will the anomaly still persist? You have to go through all those things, all those, um, uh, calculations in your head to see if it even makes sense. At what point did you notice that liquidity started to diminish? And did the fall in liquidity precede a fall in prices or was it coincident with it or did it happen after? I think generally it happens after. Right. You see a big gap in the market. Um, and then people just pull back. Right. So, uh, unfortunately, there's no one barometer you can point to to say, Oh, liquidity is drying up. The market's going to crash 20%. Right. What ends up happening is that, um, you know, on, <laughs> for some reason, these things always happen on weekends, but on a Friday night or Saturday morning, you wake up and our folks in Singapore are, are, are sending us messages or giving us an example of what happened in the market overnight. And you realize the market is off 15% and now liquidity is dried up and now it's harder to manage your risk. And maybe liquidity has moved from one exchange to another or, or there's, there's a problem in a DeFi platform that you can't access the DeFi platform. Um, so crypto has lots of unique aspects to it that make it very challenging to manage a 24 seven business. So that's liquidity. What about leverage? How do you define that? And then sort of how did you see leverage go up and down or and evolve over the past uh, uh, year or so? 
Well, leverage has definitely come out of the market in the past year um, appreciably. I can't point to any one metric. I know our traders can, but essentially you can look at open positions on lots of different exchanges. Again, there's no one central limit order book, but going back to, you know, leverage positions on FTX, the swap, the, the perps for swap market there, there are other competitors as well that have similar markets and they've all published open positions and things like that. I know there's uh, exchanges in the U.S. that do the same thing. So you can keep track, and I think that's a good barometer, open positions. You can also look at the DeFi market and look at the total value locked in some of these protocols, right? And just kind of see how much how much value is locked in different places. What are people earning? What are people willing to what are the, what do they need to earn to lock up an asset, right? So that informs you a little bit about what their expected return, what their expected returns are on that asset. Um, so it's been um, very interesting, put it that way. The, the leverage has definitely come out of the market. We expect this will persist for a long time. We think a lot of leverage was in the market as a result of folks like Celsius and, and the guys like that who had all these assets and needed somewhere to put them. Um, you know, we think over time it will build back up nowhere near where it was used to be. And the question is how long will it take for people to get comfortable again before they start deploying leverage or even using leverage in any capacity whatsoever. Right. Earlier, you used the word open interest, which in traditional finance, I associate with um, positions in, in options and futures. Is is that uh, also the case? You're, you're specifically using it for options and futures, which kind of require leverage or not yeah, options, more, with futures. Yeah, more for futures and perps, yeah. things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the exchanges will, will post that. And there are some websites that aggregate that as well, where you can kind of look at how they, um, how they summarize it or quantify it across the whole ecosystem. Futures in crypto, how did that evolve? When did those first appear and when did they become more prominent? I remember first hearing the word perps maybe about a year ago and I was like, what is this, a perpetual future? I don't even understand how that worked. It was only I recently I learned it was rolled every single day. So it's kind of like a, a daily future. It's rolled every hour actually. Or, oh. or on FTX, it was rolled every hour. On other exchanges, rolled every eight hours. Wow. Um, I think BitMEX was one of the first to come up with it. They had an eight-hour perp that was one of the first to deal with. And, and um, you know, BitMEX, as you probably aware, had its, had its issues over the years, but it was really a, um, they did a great job early on innovating, right? I mean, the whole idea of a perp and paying interest every eight hours and rolling it, not even get out of a futures position. It was a Bitcoin contract, so it was a little bit different, um, but it was just a very interesting approach. And I thought it was very innovative. And it was also pretty cool that you can earn a return on your asset, right? So, and I think that's a really neat innovation that's been overlooked a lot in crypto. Imagine if you own stocks of Apple and, and you can get paid to lend that out to someone on an exchange or through a broker. It really doesn't exist, right? For retail clients, and that's how yeah. brokers make all their money today, right? They make, they make it by lending out your assets to people that you don't make anything on. So the crypto market, you know, came up with that innovation where essentially said, listen, you can own an asset. And not only that, but you can, get paid to hold that asset, which I think is really, really interesting and is one of the neat innovations that have come out of crypto. That's exactly right. Uh, in, in retail brokerages, people are lending securities all the time and consumers generally, users generally do not receive that at all. Correct. Um, so in, in TradFi, people typically borrow stocks because they want to short them. They want to borrow something they don't have and sell it. So it's the exact yep. opposite of, of having long exposure. You're short. Why do people short things in crypto? And for example, um, I understand why people would want to buy, uh, borrow stable coins to buy Bitcoin, so a levered long. Why, why would, when people say, oh, you can earn yield on your 
Ethereum or your ETH or Bitcoin or Solana, where's that yield come from? And, you know, why do people want to borrow these securities? Well, so a, a few questions there. So the yield yeah. would come from in the DeFi world, right? There are places you can stake or farm your ETH and that, and you earn fees. Those fees are a reflection of either people borrowing your coin to either lever themselves up and buy more or buy another asset or to short the coin, right? And you get paid a percentage of the, the fee that that protocol charges for someone to borrow it. In addition to that, on places like you know, there are places you can buy and swap crypto in DeFi where you can also stake assets there or farm assets there and you earn a portion of the brokerage that they earn. So the fees they earn based using your assets, some of that comes back to you as well. So some of that supports leverage. Some of that just supports people wanting to go long and short. Uh, but the interesting thing is that you can get paid for allowing the protocol to use your assets to support trading or lending activity. Thanks. And so that happens on DeFi. It also happens on CFI, centralized finance. Yep. And an example of, of one of those firms that uh, notably did securities lending was Celsius. Uh, you, I'm, I'm sure, heard of Celsius bef before it went down. Did its collapse surprise you? And uh, did you feel like you, you sort of, there were some lessons there that there was new information you didn't have before or were you like, Oh, I, I knew Celsius was, you know, I knew that was going to happen. Listen, all these things surprise you because we're, you know, we don't work in these companies. So you never know what happens in any of these companies. Um, unfortunately, Celsius happened. They're bankrupt now. And hopefully the, the, their clients get some money back out of that. It's very unfortunate. Um, that's a very tough business model. Look what BlockFi is going through now, right? BlockFi, I don't think they've officially announced they're going bankrupt, but everyone expects it, to expects it to happen. Look what Genesis is going through now. So I think that business where you soak in assets from whether institutional retail clients and then attempt to lend them out to other people, it's a risky business, right? And I think um, what's happened over the past year, year and a half, validates that it's a risky business. It's very, it's very tough as a standalone business, right? It's a credit business at the end of the day. And you're, you're extending credit and taking credit against an asset that's very, very volatile and can get very illiquid. So it's very difficult. We interrupt this program with breaking news. Algorand is hosting an event in Dubai from November 28th through November 30th. And I am going to be there. Decipher 2022 is a gathering of investors, developers, and founders featuring deep dives on blockchain's most important topics, interoperability, DeFi, sports, gaming, and the metaverse. It's an unparalleled learning opportunity. Crack is going to be there. Binance, Anthony Scaramucci, the list goes on. You need to be there. Think about it. You're going to be coming from Thanksgiving. Your family members are going to be wondering why you won't stop talking about the Federal Reserve. This is exactly what you need to stay in the most beautiful city in the world and meet and learn from leaders in the blockchain industry. By the way, if you are there, I will talk macro with you. So get a ticket today and come hang out with me in Dubai. Tickets are available now at decipherevent.com. And for a limited time, you can use code decipherfam22 for a discount on your pass. That's decipherevent.com. There is a live stream. So if you can't be there in Dubai, you can watch it remotely. However, there are certain things you'll only get to know if you're there in person, such as, will I remember to bring Sunblack? If you ask me about how the reverse repo facility actually works, will I pretend to know the answer or will I be honest and say I have no clue? 
Decipher is hosted by Algorand, the world's most secure, scalable, and sustainable blockchain. Founded by Silvio Macaulay, the co-inventor of Zero Knowledge Proofs, Algorand recently partnered with FIFA to launch FIFA Plus Collect, the league's official NFT marketplace. With the World Cup going on in Qatar at this time, there are sure to be a ton of eyes and attention on that. So clearly there is a lot going on, not just for the Algorand ecosystem, but in the region more generally. So go to decipherevent.com. It's going to be a great event, and I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the interview. The thing about securities lending is there is a collateral there. So, um, you know, if you if I uh, if you lend me money and I lend you my Apple shares, you can just sell my Apple if, if you if are worried about me. So in principle, uh, there is that pr- buffer. So what, what, so when there's credit risk and Celsius encountered uh, credit risk, uh, notably with a firm called Three Arrows Capital, uh, what where was the credit risk? Were they not able to liquidate the collateral because it just gapped down or was the collateral not worth as much as they thought? You know, maybe what's more illustrative of what's going on with FTX these days and, and um, Alameda and, you know, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing about is they borrowed lots of dollars or collateralized by FTT, right? Which the size of their collateral was huge relative to the liquid liquidity in the market, right? So, um, you know, you have things like that where people lend assets against dollars and the people who are lending the dollars think they're protected because they think they can just liquidate the collateral. But when push comes to shove, collateral dries up, the value of the collateral nose dies very, very quickly. And all of a sudden where you didn't think you have credit exposure, now you have lots of credit exposure. But we should highlight as well, and you and I spoke about this in the past, that these issues with with borrowing against a token or borrowing against your own asset have happened in traditional finance, continue to happen in traditional finance, right? Years ago, Elon Musk was borrowing as Tesla, right? He got capital called, right? So these happen, Enron. There are lots of instances for good and bad companies where people borrow against stock of the company, whether private or public, and they tend to, they end up in a credit situation. So it kind of gets back to my earlier point that we see these issues in crypto right now, but these issues in crypto where you borrow against an asset and all of a sudden that asset dries up, all of a sudden that asset gaps in price and all of a sudden you have a big credit exposure are not unique to crypto, right? These are issues that traditional finance has um, has dealt with over the years and continues to deal with and will, and will continue to deal with. For sure. I, I think that actually what Enron did where it borrowed money from an off-balance sheet entity that was collateralized by its own stock, that is actually perfect example of very akin to what FTX did with the FTT token, as well as the SRM token. Right. Did it surprise you when, you know, these details, as the details have sort of been leaked out just about FTX's balance sheet, for example, just how uh, much customer funds they had lent out to Alameda, which is you know, run by uh, Sam Bankman-Fried as well, even though there was supposed to be sort of a, a wall and, and there wasn't, and how some of the, the valuation of these tokens, for example, Serum and FTT, I mean, you mentioned they borrowed US dollars against FTT, uh, 93% of all of the tokens of FTT were only held by 10 addresses. So this is, as you said, quite a liquid. And then SRM, it gets even more extreme where there's something like 10 billion tokens of SRM that will ever exist, but only about 3% of them actually exist. 97% of them are still exist within FTX or, or Alameda. Uh, so they were valuing all of the, not that, including that 97%. And you know, that was worth you know, 9 to $10 billion at, at the peak prices of, of SRM. So these details, I mean, they stunned me, Scott, as someone who follows traditional finance very closely. I'm kind of an, an outsider to crypto, but I'm curious about it. I'm digging in. But you know, you're, you're an insider. It, it shocked me. And I'm, oh, I feel yeah. very... 
Yeah. I mean, like, were you, were you, were you completely surprised? Or were you like, oh, I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was that bad. Like, tell, tell me how you think about this. Yeah, both. I was completely shocked and we didn't know it was bad. We know the folks at FTX very well. Like we've known them for a long time. We grew up in industry with a lot of those folks and, um, and it was shocking how bad it was there. And it was shocking how they were valuing the assets, all the points you, you bring up. And I'd love to see the audit report. How are they valued at the end of the year? Did the auditor actually approve that valuation? There's no way any auditor worth their, their weight would approve that valuation for an asset. Like it makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I'm sure the, the, the bankruptcy council and their uh, consultants will dig into that. And if things were done inappropriately, they'll, they'll do their best to recover some assets. But, um, it was shocking to me the extent of the, interaction between the two companies, how much they lent, what, what it was collateralized by. But at the end of the day as well, like we know people who lent to them, right? Based on the collateral. And they thought they were over collateralized. They had for every million dollars they lent out, they had a million and a half or two million of collateral. Great. It looks good on paper until it doesn't, right? Um, until you understand what all their other liabilities were, what, what their other assets were. And we don't know what other information Alameda gave to those counterparties to, uh, for, to, get the loan approved that we don't know. Uh, we know what we have to do sometimes when we borrow what information we give up. We're very careful about what we give and, and how we give and what we represent. Um, so I think a lot of those things will still come out in the future. And we're very eager to just, you know, for this bankruptcy process to play out and learn a lot more about what happened. I'm also very eager to, to find out those details. Uh, I've actually, you know, interviewed uh, a person on, on this podcast who actually um, said that they, they publicly said it on my podcast that they uh, lent to Alameda on an uncollateralized basis. And at the time over the summer, the argument was, oh, lending uh, to uh, basically broke entities on a collateralized basis is actually bad, especially if the collateral is of poor value. But on an uncollateralized basis to a blue chip party like Alameda, now that is a good, yeah, you, you laugh. I mean, I, I, I believed it and I'm kind of you know embarrassed that I, I believed it, but uh I think a lot of people believed it as well. And there was this myth, Scott, of Alameda, they're the smartest people in the room. They take they take risks, Scott, that you and I wouldn't be able to take because we're not we're not as smart as they are. And I think uh I mean, how much did you sort of believe that myth? Uh there's the whole narrative of, oh, there's this spread between uh you buy Bitcoin in New York and you sell it in Japan. I mean, did did you kind of see something was kind of fishy there? Maybe, maybe there was a little bit of embellishment, like no, listen, like, you know, I've been in finance for a long time. I ran a hedge fund for eight years with three really, really smart people, right? Who were, you know, much smarter than I was and taught me a lot about quantitative finance. I work with really smart people at banks. I work with really smart people in my company now. And you learn to be skeptical. You learn like no one's infallible. No one's the smartest, you know, it, people make mistakes, but people also believe their own nonsense. And, Listen, did I believe that they started their company buying Bitcoin here and selling it in China? Absolutely. Everyone was doing that. It was a great trade. You were, it, it was a great trade. You made three to 5% all day or 50. Like it was crazy. It was a crazy trade, right? Do I believe they made millions and tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of, doing that? Absolutely. Did I believe that Alameda was a market maker where they were actively making two way markets and coins? Absolutely. I believe that. I don't know if they were making money at it, but that was a business they were in. Do I believe they were farming and doing yield yield earning opportunities? Sure, right? But other than that, did I believe they're the smartest guys in the room that were doing really crazy quantitative trades? No, it's just, 
you know, I think I've been doing this long enough. I know there are some people in the world who can do that and they tend to be the big boys who have technology teams of several hundred who are co-located in every jurisdiction around the globe. And they have the, the engineering skills and the technology to do things like that. A 10 to 20 person shop at Alameda doesn't have the ability to do things like that. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Going back to the parallels between traditional finance and, and crypto, a, a huge parallel that comes out to me is when people say it's a risk-free trade and it's arbitrage, uh, you know, you can make money with arbitrage if you have a huge amount of capital and it truly is a risk-free trade, but maybe you're making 20 basis points. You're not making 20% a day. I mean, you, you said that it, it was a juicy trade, but at some point, you know, the, the spread closes and then right. to make the same amount of returns, you have to take risk. And that is exactly what Alameda did. Um, the old CEO of Alameda Research, again, the hedge fund that is um, majorly owned by Sam Bankman-Fried, who founded FTX, and Sam Bankman-Fried founded Alameda first, just for um, the, the audience. Um, he, in this year, I, I think, or, or actually maybe maybe the prior year, he was posting, yeah, this whole Delta neutral thing, not taking market risk, that's kind of overrated. We've actually, our models, we've developed these models that uh, identify when to buy and sell Dogecoin. So we're actually taking market risk and it's kind of our superpower. And Scott, this is not bullshit. This is not bullshit. You can go back to Twitter. He posted an emoji of Superman. He was saying they were Superman. Uh, by taking all the yeah. market risk. Listen, at that point, you start selling. Right? At that point, <laughs> honestly, like we have no exposure to Alameda. We don't like we knew the folks there. We never lent to them. We don't borrow from them. Like they were just another competitor, as far as we were we were aware. But as soon as someone starts, as soon as a pure quant shop says they're getting out of their comfort zone and they're doing things and they think they're better than other people doing it, and to me, that's a pure signal that they've had model creep and and. Yeah trade creep. And it's a signal that there's no one in the world that can predict where Doge is going unless you know someone, unless you're front running someone's trade. Listen, maybe, maybe, maybe they were, maybe they knew the wallets, maybe they knew the people who were selling or buying and they knew what their schedules for selling and buying were. But absent that, like, and that volatile an asset that, that, that illiquid, I just, I would take it all the grain of salt. Mm. Uh, it was widely rumored that Alameda was a large, perhaps the largest market maker on FTX. I don't think that was official because it wasn't on the number one leaderboard. You don't, you don't have to comment on that, but let's just assume that it was. On the face of it, it seems like the conflict of interest is, oh, Alameda is going to have this huge edge because it is a prioritized trader. But I also know that FTX was you know, liked by many traders because it had such narrow spreads. And my question is, did traders go to FTX because they were trading against Alameda and Alameda was such a bad trader that they just, <laughs> they just traded that and Alameda continued yeah. to lose more and more money? You know, I, I've heard both sides of that coin. I've heard someone tell me that Alameda lost money market making and made it up doing options and derivatives. And I've heard they lost a lot of money on options and derivatives made it up market making. So I don't know which of those is right or if neither one of them is right. Like I can't imagine anyone's going to be in a business where, they, where they're losing money. Right. It's just, it makes no sense to me. Um, so I don't know that what the right story is. If, if, if I had a guess, it's probably somewhere in the middle that Alameda was good at what they did, but they ran it as a business, right? They, if they had assets on a place, they wanted to make money on those assets. So it had to be a reason they're not just going to lose money for the sake of losing money. Um, mm. but that'll be one of the things that maybe we get smarter about as the months and years go forward. Yeah. So you said that Celsius exposed sort of the credit risk that was uh, inherent in, in these uh, centralized exchanges. And, and if it's a bad actor, that credit risk can be 
material and you could lose a lot of money. Uh, to what degree did FTX also show that that credit risk? And then what did FTX sort of do wrong that you think investors uh, who want to sort of do due diligence on their exchanges, if they are to keep money on their centralized exchanges, what are sort of no-nos that FTX did? I mean, I can we could talk about talk, I think 20 well, no-nos. But. Well, listen, at a basic level, they lent out client funds. Uh, if they actually did that, to me, that's illegal, right? Like yes. the, the documents that we and others signed to trade on FTX specifically mentioned that these are our assets. And yes, they had, we had the ability, people had the ability to lend assets in FTX that they could lend to others and people had the ability to borrow assets, right? On FTX with collateral. But if they literally took client assets and lent them to Alameda and others, that is illegal, right? And unfortunately, you know, there's nothing you or we can do to prevent that from happening. We can reach out to every exchange we trade on and they all can say, we don't lend out client assets when they're doing it out the back door. And it's very, very difficult to police that. At the end of the day, you hope auditors can figure that out. You hope regulators can figure that out for exchanges that are regulated. But a lot of those things are very difficult to catch, right? And, and they cat the, even if a reg, like when I worked at a regulator, I worked at one of the best in the world, the Federal Reserve, right? There were still banks that we regulated that did illegal things. They did stupid things. They broke the law. They broke regulation, right? So having a regulator is not a cure all for anything, right? It makes it a lot much harder and it makes it more likely it will get caught more quickly if there are nefarious things happening. Um, it makes it more likely that they have risk controls in place. So the people with infirms, We'll catch things before anyone else get, lets it get too far. But these are things that, you know, if people are going to steal, if they're going to lie, it's a very difficult thing to protect yourselves against. Yeah. So, uh, I, mean, I mean, how can investors protect themselves on uh, if, if, if other than not going on to a centralized exchange at all, which, which of course is, is definitely an option. I mean, are there any red flags that you think, oh, hmm, I, I like in what way can people do due diligence about the exchanges where they're storing their assets with? Um, and, and, or, or if there is no way at all, I mean, should we ever just go to a cold storage and decentralized exchange? Well, listen, I had a call with someone yesterday who had a few thousand dollars on a major exchange in the U S and he's going to take it off and put it on nano. I'm like, if you don't, if you don't need it there, why are you going to keep it there? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was just like, yeah, I'm going to, if I don't need to keep an asset there, why don't, why am I keeping it there? You know, what we look at, we look at the management team, we look at why they regulated. We look at their business model. We look at uh, their reputation. We talk to people who have traded there. Um, so we do a lot of that stuff, but nonetheless, it's not perfect, right? So um, we like it if an exchange is regulated. We understand what jurisdiction they're incorporated in there. We like to understand where their offices are. We like to understand where their management are. We like to have relationships with their management. So these are all things that we like, um, but, you know, it's never perfect, right? It's just, you know, if people are going to lie and steal from you, it's a very difficult thing to predict in advance. So I'd encourage your users just to do your due diligence, ask the questions, understand who's there. Listen, if they're offering leverage, they're getting that leverage from somewhere, right? They're probably getting it from your assets, right? So you got to make sure you understand what's their insurance fund look like, what happens when people get liquidated. Um, do they allow people to borrow and take assets off the exchange? Right. Just how those things work. But, you know, my advice is if you don't need to have your assets there, don't keep them there. There's no reason to. If you're just using it as a bank or as a custodian, find the solution. Like I, I know people who had literally U.S. dollars on FTX for months and years. They viewed it as a bank. Right. 
you are an advocate of, of cold storage. What about when people want to trade? Uh, there's centralized exchanges such as FTX, but also other ones that uh, hopefully have better risk management. Um, and But then there's also decentralized exchanges, which I don't know a ton about. They're also called DEXs. What, what's your opinion there? Well, we like them. We're doing more and more. We've been a big proponent of DEXs for many, many years. We are a market maker on DEXs. We trade on DEXs. We do staking. We do farming. Um, we're very careful about it. We do due diligence. And again, you know, there's only so much you can do. There's been some technical issues on a lot of these DEXs. There have been technical issues across the DeFi ecosystem over the course of the last many years. There will continue to be technical issues on there, right? So there are just different risks there. Uh, that don't exist with centralized exchanges. You don't really have credit risks. So you have some liquidation risk. Um, so we think that DEXs and decentralized finance are the wave of the future, but it doesn't remove all the risks, right? There's still some unique risks there that you need to be aware of and just be comfortable with. Mm, thanks. Scott, what's your general market outlook? Again, we're recording this on November 22nd. Uh, digital asset prices have fallen sharply since the beginning of this month, but actually there was sort of a stasis. They kind of crashed for a day and then they sort of trade in a very narrow, narrow band. Uh, the the uh, vibe out there, if you will, is extremely bearish. Um, how are you, how do you think this will sort of shake out? And uh, yeah, you know, some of this is wishful thinking. Some of this is you know, it's been a long year for many of us. It's been exhausting. There's been one crisis after the other. We haven't even spoken at all about what's happening in the. Um, Mining space, right? The mining space is a mess right now, right? And, and there's been huge issues there. And that got, that was a, two or three news cycles ago, right? So that's still out there. And there's a lot of potential bankruptcies that may happen there in the mining space. So I guess my point is it's been a long year for many of us. And we're just want to get through the rest of the year in a quiet manner. A lot of people like us are de-risking. We're pulling assets off. We're locking things down. We're being very, very careful. And we're starting to look towards next year. So at some level, we think a lot of the bad news is priced in. Uh, we don't expect there are many more lenders sitting on collateral they haven't liquidated yet. So uh, I could be wrong with that. I mean, if Genesis goes bankrupt, that would be unfortunate. I don't know what that means if they're sitting on collateral or people are sitting on their collateral. We don't expect that to have a material impact on just the overall um, market. Um, we think there'll be some reverberations, unfortunately. But I guess our, my, our thesis is that things will be a little bit choppy through the rest of the year. We don't see a lot of reason for things to go down much. We don't see a lot of reason for things to go up much. We think volatility will continue to uh, come down. We think liquidity will continue to come down. Um, so there could be some gaps in pricing. Um, we saw some of that today and some things we were watching. Um, but we think um, there's no real reason for the markets to do much one way or other until we get into next year, until we get some more themes. Maybe the Fed, maybe we'll start looking at macro environment. We need a better macro environment where people are comfortable the Fed is slowing down and that allows people to start taking some more risk. Um, but there really is no positive news that, that we can hang our hat on, nor do we think there's a lot more energy for people looking to sell in this market who are sitting on assets. So listen, all that could be wrong. And maybe there's a pocket of assets that if Genesis goes bankrupt, people have to liquidate to manage their credit risk. Um, that would surprise us, but we've been surprised before. So, yeah. Right. I, I guess uh, the only possible positive catalyst would be a negative news item that fails to be as negative as people 
think expect it to be. <laughs> yeah. Which those hey, those rallies can be can be can be severe. That's true. Listen, the market's a little it's flat today. Everyone I think is expecting Genesis to unfortunately declare bankruptcy, or maybe they'll they'll find a suitor at the end of the day. Um people were worried about GBTC, right? We haven't spoken about that at all. And and yeah. you know, if if there's some contagion to GBTC, that would be really, really ugly. We don't expect that to happen. Everything we've read and people we've spoken to. Um, but that's still out there as well. So, you know, if this is orderly and, and it, ha- and there's no major surprises, then I think the market just absorbs it and, and keeps on moving forward. That's very interesting. I, I want to explore that. You know, uh, unlike you, Scott, who, who knew a lot about the space before a month ago, I'm learning kind of like on the fly and sort of, I didn't know just how big FTX was until it, you know, very nearly collapsed and then ultimately did collapse. Uh, how big was Genesis? I definitely heard of them, but I didn't understand just how big they are. Were they, the, is it true, the, like the, pretty much the number one lender in the space? And who were they sort of lending to? Were they lending to digital asset funds, institutional funds? Were they lending to other uh, uh, CFI yielding things? So they were sort of an intermediary. One thinks of Gemini, of course. Um, yeah, like who were sort of the borrowers there and who were the, the lenders? Yeah, so that's a, honestly a good question. I would think they were one of the biggest institutional players in this space, borrowing and lending. That's just one piece of their business though. They're also big on the trading and option side. So I think what they've tried to do is really make a clear distinction between those two businesses, saying, hey, this issue is in our lending unit has nothing to do with our trading and options unit, which is over here, which is still profitable, which is still liquid, which is still operating business as usual. Um, so they were a big lender. I think I've seen their balance sheet or heard their balance sheet was two to three billion. I forget what the size of it was. They were material. They had, they had, you know, they would borrow and lend to folks like us. So we don't, we didn't have a business relationship with them. Um, we have no exposure to them. But they were very instrumental in providing liquidity and lending and providing collateralized and asset-backed loans. They were a major player in this space. They were a big institutional player. And, and you know, unfortunately, they got sucked into the FTX thing. Um, that surprised them and surprised all of us. And I'm guessing a lot of their issues were they also lent to people who had assets in FTX. So, and that's hard for them to really get their head around. You, you can see what your direct exposure is on FTX, but it's hard to say, listen, if I lent out a half a billion dollars to a hundred hedge funds and they collateralize it with Bitcoin or with FTT, now maybe those assets have disappeared because all those hedge funds stuck their assets in FTX and can't pay me back. Yeah. Uh- there's a great thread on Twitter of someone who just writes a Genesis timeline of what Genesis said. So on November 8th, they said, we have no material credit exposure to FTX. November 9th, they say, oh, by the way, we lost $7 million. November 10th, he said, we, okay, we do have $175 million locked in FTX. November 16th, they said, sorry, no new withdrawal, no withdrawals or new loans. November 17th, they said, okay, we need a billion dollars. And then November 21st, they said, we'll go bankrupt without the money. Uh, so quite a big move in terms of what is first released and then what is it's sort of like drip, drip, drip. And right. then today we're hearing, yeah, they have 2.8 billion uh, outstanding loans on their balance sheets. And they also made a loan to its parent company, DCG, uh, Digital Currency Group. So you said that they were separated, and I think that's the idea. And one would have hoped that was the case, but unfortunately, you know, as was the case with FTX, there was a time. Oh, you can't withdraw on FTX, but you can still withdraw on FTX. FTX, FTX US, US is fine. Right, Don't right, worry about it. They just right. share the same name. You know, these things often the the wall is that you would hope to be there is not there. Right, that's true. And and these are the these are the unknowns that um, will play out over the next days, maybe or weeks, as we get better visibility into the relationships there. Right. Uh, it's unfortunate, right? It's unfortunate that 
you know, someone's inappropriate slash criminal activity at FTX or a group of people's has such a knock-on effect to other people who are just trying to build a business. We know a lot of people at Genesis. We know they're very good. They're honorable, honest, hardworking folks, right? And they're going to get dragged into this stuff. And a business that they've built up over four years goes to, has the potential to go down the tubes very, very quickly. Scott, it's been great having you here. I got to ask you about GBTC, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It traded at a massive premium, then it did a massive discount. And I know that all sorts of institutional players put trades on. So it's a very systemically sort of important uh, asset. What's going on now with, with GBTC? You know, I, it's hard to um, hard to understand where this goes, right? I think it was at a 45 or 50% discount last I checked. I did see that um, Kathy Wood at ARC bought a bunch of it. Um, I think for people who are in the long term, I think it's probably still not a bad place. If you want to go long Bitcoin, it's not a bad place to go long Bitcoin, right? I, I would really be shocked if they didn't literally have the Bitcoin to support the GBTC they issued. I think Coinbase came out and said, yeah, we're sitting on either all of it or some of it. So I think there are big liquidity issues there. Um, and even if Genesis lending business goes down, I'm hoping and expecting it doesn't have any effect on the trust they set up to manage these assets. Um, but who knows? Like to your earlier point, like I think that's why everyone's afraid of like, listen, like why take the risk? You know what I mean? Like at this point, people are like, I'm guessing, I'm like, listen, there's so much uncertainty. There's so many things that are opaque in this ecosystem. Like, let me just get out of it until there's better visibility. Someone like Kathy Wood's been in it long enough, I guess, and she maybe has enough um, connections there and her lawyers and, and credit folks have been through it. Maybe she's much more comfortable than maybe you or I or others would be. But um, I'm hopeful that there's no contagion there. I'm hopeful that everything works out. And I have no reason to believe why it wouldn't. Thanks, Scott. My final question for you is, you know, we've been doing a little bit of doom and gloom because, uh, you know, sometimes it is raining out there. But what rays of sunshine are you seeing on the horizon in sort of uh, are there any positives of what has happened over the next month? And, you know, in the next bull market, how do you think the crypto world can sort of learn from its its mistakes uh, that, that we've seen this year? Yeah, listen, I think DeFi has held up very, very well. Right. The, the DeFi exchanges, the DeFi lending pools, there have been no catastrophes there. There have been no hacks. There have been no, nothing's happened that was unexpected in DeFi. And I think there have been a lot of people talking about that and promoting that. Right. So if you're comfortable managing your assets, controlling your wallets, it's a great place to put positions on. It's a great place to lend, to borrow, to do things that you may have gone to a centralized exchange to do before. Um, so we like that a lot. We like the fact that ETH merge went very well. We think there's a lot going on in the NFT space with uh, artists' rights and, and, and people who own intellectual property being able to monetize that. So we still, still think there's a lot of good coming out of this, but it, there's a lot of crap in front of it right now that we've got to get through. And, and once we get through it, I think people will say, wait a minute, there's a lot of cool things happening here. There's a lot of value being created and a lot of opportunities here. There we go. Well, Scott, thank you so much uh, for joining me. It's been a total pleasure hearing, hearing your thoughts. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. It's uh, Podbean as in on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. 
In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Thanks for watching.